1: Hey
0: everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic, and welcome to an episode that we've been promising for weeks, as we often do. It takes us a while to build up to things we say we're going to do, but we, more often than not, get them done. And this one is about a novel. It's a very contemporary fantasy novel that came out at the end of last year. And I'm doing it with the Gideon to my Hark, <laughs> my dear friend Pete. Um, if you haven't already guessed, we're talking about Gideon the Ninth by Tasman Muir, one of New Zealand's finest writers, along with Emma Burquist, who's also a New Zealand writer these days, I'm told. Um, and this one got a big bu- lot, of, lot of buzz last year, and it's less than a year old. It's got a sequel coming out, I think, sometime this year, fairly soon. It's, you know, it's one of those big, heavily hyped tour releases. Um, We'll get in depth about what it's about. I think that a brief synopsis would be to say it's about this sort of necromantic space empire where you have these different noble houses occupying different planets. And there are intimations that this empire, which is led by this sort of like supposedly undying god emperor who's a necromancer you know there's there's intimations that they have enemies because they field these big armies who fight with swords of course because swords are cooler than guns right we all know that star wars taught us (laughs) star wars taught us long ago if we hadn't already learned it from dune that even in your vast space opera empire you have to have swords um so i've been talking a lot here Pete, pete 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 um Connor. I'm not really I'm not totally sure where to start with this one. I I will I actually I think the maybe the best way to do this is just for me to ask you, drawing on your vast reserves of knowledge in this genre, what did this remind you of? Sure. Okay, um I one of the things I
1: thought about when I was reading this was what books did this person read? And that's that's a fun game to to do when you're when you're encountering a first writer. A writer for the first time, uh, I, Stephen Bruce seems to have uh, a relationship to this. There's a, there's a whole school of fantasy novels that I think of as Tarantino thief stories, and they're things like uh, the Jarek books that Stephen Bruce did. Uh, the The basic idea is you have an extremely skilled and talented person. Uh, as a, who is a thief, or at least absolutely morally neutral, navigating uh, a fantasy world where they don't have magic. They get by on skill alone. And um, in that sense, just looking at that piece of this, this book does plug into a, a real
0: type of fantasy. Interesting. I wouldn't have thought of the sort of thief heist Story, but you're totally right, because I, what I didn't do there, I did a very Connor thing, which is I gave some, like, big picture, um, thematic, 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 what did I say that, thematic and world building um, info, but I didn't actually talk about the characters. So when I said that Pete was the Gideon to my hero hark, you have hero hark, nonagesimus, if I'm pronouncing that right, who is the scion of the ninth house, which is like the most religiously pious um, of these necromantic houses, and they guard this sort of terrifying, mythic locked tomb on this poisonous planet where they all live underground. And the house is kind of threadbare and poor. And most of the planet is made up of these religious nuns and monks who are constantly doing rosaries with you know um, beads made of bone. Everything in this world is like bone magic. So you know a lot of the the labor, the actual just scut work that keeps things going all over the space empire is done by skeletons. Uh, that have been reanimated by necromancers, which is just one of many cool touches here. But Herahart Nonegesimus is the, like, I think she's, like, only, like, 17 or something, um, heir to this house. And things are not going great for this house. Uh, It's a little bit of a... Not much of a spoiler, because it happens early in the book, to say that her parents are dead. She's all they have. And she has... She chooses as her cavalier for this off-world mission, summoned by the emperor or whatever, to this... Also strange, weird world. Um, She chooses uh, Gideon, who is this very sassy young woman who is a little bit older. I think she's 19, who I think came to this planet as like the baby or she was in the womb of this like astronaut that basically fell out of the sky. Mysterious origins. And then Gideon was there as this foundling and grew up to be a great warrior um also like she's a great warrior, she's great at a number of things. She hates, hates, hates the ninth house and wants to get off the planet. She wants to be in the imperial military. She dreams of that. Her plans are thwarted, but she gets to go be the cavalier sort of right hand of her necromancer hero arc. And I'm getting into way too much detail here. I just there's a lot to be said, um, once you get down into it, because both of these characters I think are are quite interestingly rendered. Um So you looked at this as a thief story. Did anything leap to mind in the more like necromantic elements of this for you?
1: Um, Let me think about that. Well, you know, earlier I was uh, uh, I I I was talking to you about some silly comparisons earlier, but I want I want to correct it. I think Gideon the Ninth is Finn the Human, and uh, the Harrowhark is. Uh, Princess Buttercup,
0: uh, Bubblegum
1: Bubblegum. <laughs> That's the relationship.
0: That. I don't even know that reference. What are you referencing? Adventure Time. Oh yeah, I've seen. I, I mean, I've seen Adventure Time in the distant past. It's been a while. It hasn't been a while lo- Oh, I, I, I uh, never mind. This
1: is becoming an age thing. I, I apologize. But yeah, I, my my point is that you 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 have a you have somebody who is. Uh, sort of like street smart And sassy and competent with their hands And then you have another person Which is uh, uh, a, An academic it, Actually it's sort of like us you know, The comparison you made was very good I think
0: <laughs> Well Yeah and I, I think it's a little bit imprecise Because you, you don't remind me that much of Gideon I probably The comparison to Herohark is Maybe it's a little bit closer to home Just because like Harrowhark, I have this very sort of self-directed sense of what I want, and I go out for the things that I want really, really hard, which is kind of Arrowhawk's, and she's good at things, but yeah. it's more, it's less that she's good at things and more that she's incredibly determined, and that she, she determines what she wants based on herself and herself alone. She's just an incredibly willful person, um, and I thought, you know, I have a lot of those traits. Now, I'm not saying, you don't, and that you do remind me of Gideon in a lot of, a lot of great ways. Like you said, you are adaptable and resourceful which Gideon is, um, you are a great friend to have in that regard because you're the one who's going to come up with, you know, solutions that are both pragmatic, but creative. You do this a lot. Um, I've got a badass long sword. (laughs) You do have a sword. It's true. Pete has a sword now. (laughs) Not even kidding. Pete bought a Conan sword in case people haven't seen that on Twitter. Um, that's one reason to follow us on Twitter. If you don't, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Pete will post stuff like that. Um, but I, you know, and I think that to be clear, you mentioned the sort of the thief thing. What I didn't mention, I keep I keep remembering things that I want to mention with this book. But like last thing would be what they're doing is all of the houses have to send their heir, like necromancer heir, mostly very young people um, and a cavalier who vary in age and kind of every house has their own style and their own way of doing things. But they have to come to this planet. This is the planet of the first house, the house of the undying emperor who in theory lives on a spaceship far away and they have to basically explore this palace to figure out how to become lictors who are sort of the immortal kind of archangel necromancers who attend to the god king so they're just basically exploring this big decrepit mysterious facility on this very watery planet everything's ocean except for these kind of platform palaces that exist it's
1: sort of like boy's state for wizards (laughs)
0: I thought Boys State was like is it like a Catholic like reform school or whatever? Oh no, what like they, they, they grab the they
1: grab the most uh, uh politically intense person from every high school and ship them off somewhere in the middle of the state and they have them get together and temporarily form a government.
0: Oh, but, I'm thinking about Boys Town, sorry, in, in Nebraska. I get that mixed up. No, you're right. Boys State or um as we called it, some states call it like governor's school, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, um before you go on, one, one thing. Yep. Okay, hit it, Pete.
1: Okay, so, like, when you're asking what this is like, that's one of the cooler things about this, is that, like, I think you can sort of pull each individual Lego of this story and say, this relates to this over here. Like, uh, John Scalzi did a short story whose name escapes me that is about gods being tortured to be the, uh, the hyperdrives of starships. And some of, there seems to be a relationship between the magic system of that and this. And like, there's other little things I can, I can, uh, I can do. But like, I do want to give credit, like, I, there's, I, I can't say this story is a rehashed version of another story, which is—I uh, mean—that's high praise in fantasy, frankly. I mean, most most of the ideas are
0: completely rehashed. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's that's fair, based on I. It reminded me of a number of things. Like you, I could see elements that are going into it, and I probably thought of some that were different than you were thinking of. Honestly, a wild card one here for me was Fallout, because it becomes clear over the course of the story or at least is strongly suggested that what they're exploring was a facility that at one point belonged to a civilization much like ours. Like they're finding electric toothbrushes, they're finding lab equipment that would be rec- recognizable to URI, but like, you know, in the future, it's, 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 it's abstracted from a sci-fi version of our world, but like it, it, it had that fallout feel of exploring facilities that were sort of had immense significance, and not, and most of the characters had no idea what the significance might have been in trying to do this kind of archaeology in the midst of a quest. Um, in an archaeology, not in like an ancient temple, but in like a, a high tech um, lab setting, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and sort of a ruthlessly practical. I mean, they're more like tomb raiders than true archaeologists. Like they, they're, they're trying to get something. They're not trying to. Uh, get a window onto the past.
0: Right. They're trying to get something and they don't know how to get it. So they have to sort of do this kind of meta search. And they do kind of, you know, I won't spoil what exactly happens, but they do more or less figure it out. There's plenty of action. There's a lot of menace in this um, palace, as you might guess. There's menace all over this world because, you know, it's necromancers. It's very morbid. Um, and every house has, like, their inside set of values. You have, like, the one house that's the... The second house is like this militaristic house. They have they, they call each other by these ranks. Um you have the eighth house, which is this sort of like ascetic, like but also inquisitorial religious house. Um Yeah, every time you say that I start thinking of the,
1: the Age of Aquarius song. <laughs> Like when the the third house rises and the moon is aligned with Mars or whatever, I don't I don't know. Okay, that was not helpful. We could even cut that if you want. No, no, but no, just-
0: no. we're not going to cut it because I like that. <laughs> it's it's a good piece of levity to introduce here. But the point is that all these houses are different, and they, there's of course a lot of internal politics, a lot of shifting alliances. There's a lot. There's a, there's a you know, it's in the Game of Thrones tradition in that way, where you have these sort of like noble houses with their own cool colors and flags, and they have to have these shifting you know Byzantine. Um, internal politics but uh, yeah i mean and i think one thing that really stands out here that i wrote about in my newsletter which again folks if you're not subscribed to my newsletter go to connoroseother.substack.com sign up for my newsletter uh i will do my best not to disappoint you i think it's pretty good um but i wrote about this book and I, i didn't interestingly i hadn't finished the book when i was writing about it and i i didn't really conclude anything all that interesting i just sort of noticed the immense quippiness Early on, that continues throughout. These are very quippy characters, and despite being in this necromantic space empire, they talk um, not, I wouldn't say like teens that I know of today. Maybe they talk like uh, teens of the recent past with slight alterations. I don't know. It's, I don't know. Tarantino Whedonisms. Tarantino Whedonisms, That's that's good. <laughs> yeah, there's there's more creativity I think than than like typical Whedonisms, but there's a big Joss Whedon influence here, and I think we'd be remiss to ignore it. And I think one way to just to demonstrate that and kind of note it and move on is I'm just gonna read from a passage very early on uh, when when Gideon and Harrowhark are forming their very tenuous and antagonistic alliance. Um, to go to this planet together. This is this is pretty early in the book. Gideon had never confronted a broken heart before. She had never gotten far enough to have her heart broken. I'll, I'll pause here to say that she was trying to get off this planet for like the 80-somethingth time before Herarok foiled foil her. She knelt on the landing field, knees in the grit, arms clutched around herself. There was nothing left but blown out, curly patterns in the pebbles. Where the shuttle had passed... A great dullness had sunk over her, a deep coldness, a thick stolidity. When her heart beat in her chest, it was with a huge, steady grief. Every pulse seemed to be the space between insensibility and knives. For some moments, she was awake, and she was filled with a slow-burning mine fire, the kind that never went out and crumbled everything from the inside. For all the other moments, it was as though she had gone somewhere else. Behind her stood the lady of the ninth house. "'watching her with no satisfaction. "'I got wind of your plan only last week,' she admitted. "'Gideon said nothing. "'A week before,' Harrow continued, "'I wouldn't have known at all if I hadn't gotten the summons. "'You'd done everything right. "'They said I could put my reply on the shuttle I had previously scheduled "'if I wanted to write in paper. "'I will give you your due. "'There was no way you could have accounted for that. "'I could have spoiled it before, "'but I wanted to wait until now to do anything.' I wanted to wait for the very moment when you thought you'd gotten away to take it from you. Gideon could only manage, why? The girl's expression was the same as it was on the day that Gideon had found her parents dangling from the roof of their cell. It was blank and white and still. Because I completely fucking hate you, said Harrowhark. No offense. (laughs) Okay, so... That passage is really great, I think, to demonstrate what's going on here, because there's a lead-in that first paragraph that I read that that takes up about half the passage. It's very nicely written. It shows off uh, Muir's inventiveness. There's some nice metaphorical imagery. I think Muir is just a very talented writer in general. Um, There's a great spunky charisma to what she does, but it's not like chuck wendig holy amazeballs at every turn um oh god so she can you know, she can do i mean she's better than that she's a lot better than that and i think there's so there's a there's a kind of a, a more sophisticated spunk to what she's doing but as it went on you know there was some classic like fantasy monologue where i'm going to give you exposition about what i just did which is you know that's a great sci-fi fantasy thing that happens all the time but then at the end it's because i completely fucking hate you no offense <laughs> Which is, you know, I mean, I I don't know what, what words you could use for that besides quippy, banter, a little bit um. And I thought it was funny, and I thought it landed. Uh, and, and I will say Harrowhark is, I think, well-rendered here because Gideon is the point-of-view character, so the narration sticks close to her in third person. So she's more sympathetic from the beginning for us because Harrowhark initially is kind of the antagonist. And, of course, as you might guess, as the story goes on, it gets more complicated and their relationship gets more interesting and dynamic. But Harrowheart comes off as really, really dislikable. And you have to sort of learn to like her and understand her as the story goes on. And, you know, you can see the, the work that's being put in on the front end here to kind of complicate that for us and make it worthwhile for her to be complicated throughout. Pete, is there something you want to add to what I'm saying here? No,
1: I, I agree with everything you're saying. Um, I, um, I never grew to like her. I mean, I understood her more, and I that she she became a lot more likable. But um, I, I, what's weird about this story to me? Like, I I will agree with you in that it is it is well written and interesting. There's a lot that's interesting happening here, and I sort of like the sort of pulpy freeness of the whole thing. Like, it's a fun read but there's things in the book that make uh, that make it hard for me to decide whether i'm really into this book until i read sequels because there's stuff lying around that doesn't feel resolved like i feel like Gideon just sort of like folded early you know, it's like she spent her whole life trying to escape the situation. And then in a three minute conversation, she just sort of like looped back and said, OK, well, I'll, I'll just I'll throw in with you now. I didn't like that. But it that could mean that it's revisited later, which would be pretty cool. Stuff like that.
0: So I think you make a really good critique of this book, which is I think that the second half, more or less, is a lot stronger than the first half. Um Partly because there's some—I would say that early on the pacing can lag a bit, and it lags a bit because a lot of the important things that are happening are offstage with Harrowhark and we're stuck with Gideon. And like you said, Gideon gets to this planet where Harrahark has dragged her very much against her will, and Gideon doesn't do much. She makes a few friends and kind of prowls around— but she doesn't. go to suggesting. the cafeteria. She know. goes. She goes to the cafeteria. Like it's very much a boarding school novel at that point. Like yeah, true. There's, there's a big Hogwarts vibe here. There's no use denying it. Like this is in that boarding school tradition. This is sort of like this is the Xavier School for mutants, but for necromancers. Um, but the point being, Gideon, like if Gideon had a lot more, if she were really fiery about escaping, she could have been like trying to build a boat and sail out of there. Like there's a lot of things that she could have done to try to get away. She could try to try to steal a ship. And mm-hmm. none of that even seemed to occur to her. Um, she did just sort of like, ultimately, like with a lot of sass and a lot of backtalk and a lot of you know, uh, a lot of swearing. She did. She did come around to being sort of Ark's, you know um, ally and buddy. And I agree with you that could have all been made a little bit more interesting. And I think that when the story picks up and more things start happening, and there's not as much happening offstage, stage, it it becomes a stronger. It becomes a very propulsive. I think very rigorously plotted story. As we get towards the Mall. And yeah, I mean, you nailed it. Like, this is part of... I don't know, this is this is not new in sci-fi and fantasy, but this was sold, you know, with a sequel that may have already been written. That is, by the way, it's called... The sequel is called Harrowhark the Ninth, and we all know who the point of the character in that one's going to be. Um, which means that I may be reading it by myself if Pete doesn't like <laughs> Harrowhark. But uh, anyway... Yeah, the sequel was always in the pipeline. Um, It's set up very clearly by the ending. And that's not new in sci-fi and fantasy. I think that, I mean, maybe it's an interesting point. Are you saying that you found that aspect of things a little bit overdone? Like there was just too much being kicked to a sequel?
1: Yeah, and, and then there's some things that, like, if it's not in the sequel, it just didn't satisfy. And let me give you a little non-spoiler example, okay? You know the rapier versus longsword thing? So Gideon is the greatest long swordsman in all the worlds. Like for whatever reason, she's simply badass at it. And in order to go on this journey, she has to quickly learn to use a rapier because if she doesn't use a rapier, everybody's going to know she's a fraud and like the relationships between the houses, like that sort of weakness is one they will all jump on. And so they get there and they talk about that a little bit and at some point a, a switch flicks and she just... Just, she just switches swords and nobody gives a shit.
0: Ah, okay. Um, and and I don't like that. I don't like that level of build up without a penalty. Well, I, I will dispute that a little bit, just to say that there is a lot made of how hard she has to train with the rapier to become okay at it, and then she does lose a duel fairly early on um, because these houses love to duel each other, and it's the you know it's usually the Cavaliers that duel. Um, she does lose a, uh, sort of mock duel, I guess I should say early on because she's not as good yeah. with the rapier. So there is, there is some cost. I agree with you that like, once you really get into the meat of the story, um, there's just a lot more, a lot more ass kicking going on. <laughs> yeah. If that's what you mean. Well, and,
1: and those things like that, that I'm pointing at, they aren't fatal. Like I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying it destroys the purpose of this book. For the record, I really liked it. But, like, those little things are the one things I find myself thinking about later when I want to be annoyed, you know?
0: Yeah, I think one thing you can say about this book is that, like, if it didn't want to have more out-and-out conflict in kind of, you know, what you'd say that the early part of the second act or much of the middle, like, if it didn't – if it if – it, Wanted to do as little as it does at some moments in the book, like it should have just cut some stuff out and gotten to the stuff it seemed to care about more. And that's true of a lot of books. Um, yeah. you know, I this this book could easily have shed a hundred pages, um, especially if you just forced Muir to be a little bit more economical about certain things. But again, let's not to say that like I have some objective authority here to say that it's it, you know, her style is a little bit more on the long-winded like embellishing side of things and that's fine because I think she is quite a talented writer and as our one of our good buddies in discord Carlo pointed out uh, discordians are always good at at tempering my takes on these things he said like well I mean by fantasy standards this is not (laughs) exceptionally long-winded and he's like "Uh," I'm like yeah that's you know what you're right
1: (laughs) yeah yeah we're not at Tolkien levels of leaf describing here by any means
0: no, or just like we're not at like you know seven book series and they're all eight hundred pages long, uh, which is true of many fantasy series, right? So, it, yep.
1: I, I, Question we, for yeah, you.
0: Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, when we first talked about this, you
1: handed it to me, and I don't even remember the context, but you mentioned young adult. And so I just assumed this was a young adult novel when I picked it up. And I started reading and I'm like, this is not a young adult novel. So for me and for our audience, what is the relationship between this book and this author and young adult?
0: Ah, okay. So I think that that, what that boils down to is this is one of many sci-fi, but especially fantasy, I think, novels that are being written now with an awareness that you want to capture an audience of people who read a lot of YA or we're reading a lot of YA, that there's a certain permeability between what you're doing and, and YA. And I think the easiest way to say that in this case is these characters are quite young. I think Gideon is, like I said, right around 19 and Harrowhark is supposed to be a little bit younger than her. So they're both teens. Um, and that, that would put them a little bit older than then the YA sweet spot of like 15 or 16, but like, you know, still teenagers. And, you could easily age those characters down. There would, you know, given that you're already asking us to accept the existence of a necromancer, necromancer space empire, you could easily say, "All right, we're gonna say Gideon is 15 and Herarch is 13," and then you're truly in YA territory. Um, yeah,
1: you'd have considerably less necromance at that point.
0: Wait, what do you mean? Uh, oh. That- <laughs> <laughs> Well but that's the key point right like you make a point about yeah. romance you're making a point about romance and sexuality I don't think either of these characters have any sexual experience to speak of certainly we don't see them having any and if they have if they have had any they don't talk about it they have desires because they're you know they've reached puberty but like but and by the way it's important to note Gideon it, Gideon is attracted to women she never mentions being attracted to men so um and I think Harrowhark Hark, we're led to believe, is also attracted to women. And neither of them, they don't, neither of them uses words like gay or queer or lesbian. Um, that doesn't seem to be in their vocabulary that I can recall, at least. I'm trying to remember if they ever make cracks No, no, that. it's
1: not there. I was, yeah. I was half looking for it. I, I, I hate myself for doing that, but I was sort of curious as I was going through if that sort of language was being used. And I'd say definitely no.
0: Right. So we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that, like, their sexuality is important to the story. It's relevant to the plot. Um, Who they are attracted to does become important at different points. Um, But again, this is all about it's all about desire and, um, you know, the sexuality that one can have without, at least in the in the course of this story, um, actually having sexual encounters. So that could easily I mean, that that kind of thing easily is in the province of YA. Although ironically, YA almost likes to slather on the sexuality harder than that. So there's a weird inversion going on here where when you do the adult version, it's more okay to not have sex. And when you do the YA version, I feel like there's almost more encouragement for more like overt romance. There is kind of a, to be clear, there is kind of a romance arc um, where, and I don't want to spoil too much, but Gideon definitely has a raging crush on this other, uh, you know, female necromancer, I guess around her age, from the seventh house, who is in very poor health and can't really get around very well, and we're told is dying uh, of a chronic condition uh, when she she's goth. Planet. Yeah, well, everyone in this story is goth. To be clear, <laughs> I mean, it's a necromancer story. Yeah, it's like this again. Goth. Like we have to use the word goth at some point here. You're totally right. I guess what I'm saying. I guess what I'm saying is like sexuality to romance is here. But it's not like we are not in, um, you know, like a uh, Walter John Williams book where we're going to have several, you know, steamy sex scenes. That's not at all what's going on. It's much more juvenile than that. It's much more adolescent than that. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with kind of having that like that earnestness um, around that sort of earnest innocence around these things. It just. Yeah. Yeah,
1: go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it makes Gideon more interesting because she sort of has the agency of a juvenile. Like, when when she was, like, trying to rebel against her choices, like, she basically tried to run away from home and join the army. That was her deal. And then when she gets into this other situation, the idea of, like, splintering off, like, I think the main reason that she's not, like, betraying the, the person she's with is that, like... Sh- an option like that doesn't really occur to her to do so. You know what I mean? It's it, I, I found that interesting, and it did seem uh, adolescent.
0: Yeah, you could say that Harohark is arguably mature for her age, and that she has a strong sense of control over all aspects of her life. She has a lot of executive function. She's always planning and organizing things. Um, she acts with great restraint. You know, keeps her own counsel. So she comes off. Harohark comes off as quite adult. Older than her age. Gideon is... There are plenty of 19-year-olds who are like Gideon, but let's just say Gideon is not mature for her age. Uh, she, she's a
1: puck figure in a lot of ways. Like She is the chaos in the story. It's like everybody else is like trying to do complicated formula and stuff, and she's like, well, how about I shove eight feet of steel into it? What happens then? And it, it, it makes for a really cool dynamic. I enjoy it.
0: Totally, and I think that... Um, I'm with you in that if there's one thing I could have wished for this. It would have been to see Gideon instilling more chaos because like Gideon could have been the one given her lack of regard for the entire religious order of this empire, given her lack of regard for Harrow Hark early on. Like she could have been running around stealing things, breaking things, generally causing chaos. And we see a little bit of that when she starts some fights and stuff, but it's not. It definitely feels like she's sort of holding back that true side of herself I think until until the very end.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's very true. Um but I mean when you, when you look at it through the YA lens which you you kind of brought here earlier, I think that makes a little more sense.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it I think the more we do this pod especially as we do contemporary stuff because like for all of the wonderful foresight that writers like Zelazny or Le Guin had, when they were writing for adults, I don't think that they were writing as intentionally for an audience that was also being steeped in books for younger readers. Now, they they certainly would have been aware that literate people at one point had been reading books for younger readers. But then th- I think the assumption was you would age out of that. And that is not the case anymore. Um, and I don't want to impugn that. I'm sure we have many listeners who read a lot of YA and that's totally fine. I think there's a lot of really interesting YA out there. And actually Emma, we've had the show a few times, is a YA writer. And she's also, you know, one of my sort of dearest friends among writers that I know. And we talk a lot about this stuff. And I, I tease her about the YA thing, but like I don't, you know, I don't have I think that books geared at younger readers are really interesting. I might attempt one sometime. And I mean, if there's anything that's that's frustrating, it's that as she said, there's less and less space for doing YA that truly is for teens, partly because there's a certain kind of adult that these books are often aimed at now. But putting that aside, I think that like it's interesting to consider now, we're reading stuff from the 2010s and now the 2020s, and we're going to be talking a lot about the permeability of the boundary between YA and um, contemporary fantasy and sci-fi for adults. And to be clear, there's also a lot of sci-fi and fantasy out there that is, do- that is doing well in the marketplace that very much doesn't want to be that. There's, you know, I feel like a lot of the serious space opera stuff that's out there is for people who, when they were 13, were not reading YA, but were reading Heinlein, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you could say that Heinlein definitely did some YA stuff, but I, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. There's, there's a vein of science fiction, actually most of science fiction, that has predominantly been read by uh, boys between the ages of like 12 and 19, and so, like, w- the, the, actually, let, let me talk about this for a second. It doesn't perfectly tie in the ninth, but I think we could rope it back. There has been a change in my lifetime, and I think it's a pretty darn interesting one, where, like, let's, let's say video games, for example, or Dungeons & Dragons, or fantasy novels. If you were playing those as a younger person and you got older, you sort of had a choice. You either stopped admitting you were doing it or you would stop doing it. And the uh, millennials and people younger have broken that wall down either because they're reading them what other people haven't or more likely they're just not lying about it. And. It's. I think it's created a market that wasn't there before. I, like, there's there are people who hold on to a style of reading and don't abandon it just because you're supposed to. And like, I think it's been wonderful for a young adult, and I think it's good for science fiction and getting better. And it's one of the things that makes like the Marvel movies possible. So I, I guess that part's a negative, but you get what I
0: mean. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I think that this is this is one of those central facts that we grapple with, um, you know, yeah. is sort of like the that certain aspects of what we call science fiction and fantasy have been pushed so far into the cultural mainstream and are for all ages. That's part of the key thing here is that like that that is a tremendous shift that we've addressed. Yeah. Often in the context of, of superhero movies, because like, yeah, once upon a time, believe it or not, the X-Men was supposed to be for kids. Imagine that. Imagine that now, or imagine thinking you know Batman was just for kids. I mean, holy shit. Um, <laughs> and and you know, it's I I don't I don't know that I, I I'm neutral on the phenomenon as a whole. I do think that it leads us to some, some really interesting directions as as both writers and readers, and I think this book, Getting the Ninth, is an interesting case study because. It it actually reminded me of what I'm working on, where you have two characters who are adults. In my head, I almost said my head canon, and I remembered it's my book. My head canon is the canon. So, um, it, but in my in my in the canon in my mind, um, you know, the, there's two narrators, right? And one is a woman. I think she's a, she's 27. I would say the male is about 31. So they're a few years apart. Both definitely adults. You know. Um, and there's a lot of sexual tension between them, but the, the book itself, I and mean, maybe I'm spoiling my own story, but there's not a lot of, uh, actual sexuality in the book. There's just, there's this, you know, they have, oh, there's a lot of intensity about their relationship, but not so much in that way. Um, and I probably, that probably is too big of a spoiler of my story in some ways. Sorry about that. But, but <laughs> what I'm getting at here is just to say, it, I saw a lot of that at Gideon where you make a lot of, Hey, With tension, with desire that's being sublimated, with the erotic edge that happens in different kinds of intimacy, happens in you know in friendships, happens in professional relationships. Um, I think we're opening up. You know, this is one thing that we've been very smart about, like comparing the sci-fi and fantasy that we're reading now to the stuff that Pete and I have gone back and read from like 1978. And it's just like there's so much more. Nuance and shading and texture of different ways that erotic and romantic impulses can express themselves, and it's no longer just the wish fulfillment of straight men <laughs> who yeah. just who just want to bang. Like, and well, that's a big shift I, too.
1: I think that's seventy five percent about what what's going on. The other twenty five percent is like uh Gideon the Ninth was written very close to this cultural moment, so the. Some of the subtext is text, you know, it's like uh, when you're when you're looking at um, uh, Heinlein's Tunnel in the Sky, for example, one, I'm so sorry. And two, uh, like if there are things going on on a on a deeper emotional level about a, a boy becoming a man or any of that stuff, you might not recognize all of it because uh Becoming a man in the fifties is nothing like becoming a man now. It's it's and it renders some of the text meaningless. And like we're well, that's too strong. But but what I'm saying is like we're right here with this fiction and we're watching the wall change. And Gideon the Ninth is an example of that. That that is of great interest to me.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, one thing that I don't think that I mentioned strongly enough, but is played for a lot of comedy in this, is that. Despite living underground on a poisonous, isolated planet that's mostly just a giant tomb and is populated by reanimated skeletons and religious orders, somehow Gideon has a stash of porno mags (laughs) that gets referred to a lot. That gets referred to a lot, which I thought was like a great – I don't know. I found that detail quite funny because it is so implausible. It's both – because it does that beautiful thing you can do in fiction, where something is implausible, like for like, how the hell did she get porno mags on this strictly religious planet way out there? That's like doesn't have you know an economy to speak of or anything. How did she even get them? But then also immensely plausible because she's an adolescent who's sexually rep- repressed and you know can't express her sexuality through other mediums. So she desperately needs pornography. So she found a way to get it. <laughs> that's you know
1: right, right. She's on the nun planet. She's got to figure it out. And, yeah, if it weren't for the fact that she was on this incredibly regimented world, my first thought would be, you can't tell me these guys don't have the Internet. Well, you know, they probably have something like the Internet, and it's probably filled with prayers about skulls. So, you know, no good at all to her.
0: Well, this is is one of those great sort of... (laughs) Space, I, I keep using the term space opera, which doesn't really necessarily apply, although I like to use it when I talk about space empires, but it's one of those great space empire stories where they have, like, you know, um, interstellar communication and, like, close to light speed travel, but like you said, they fight with swords and, like, don't actually have, like, any handheld computing or anything, which is, you know, pretty... Cause, part of the reason they have they have a magic system. And part of what is suggested to have happened, if this isn't spoiling too much, is that, like, at some point, our a civilization like ours, or like a more advanced version of ours, was research doing scientific research on necromancy and sort of technologically invented this magic system. Because they talk about the magic system as having theorems and stuff, they talk about it in technological terms, um, in scientific terms. But yeah, I mean this this whole the whole uh, world of this novel is I I found it quite delightful. I love this idea of this sort of like falling apart gigantic stone palace that sits, that sits in the middle of this vast ocean and like has all these dead plants falling off the, you know, it's like mezzanines and it's staffed by skeletons who are sort of running around with trays of food and going fishing with little fishing poles. And like, I I don't know. I, something about the aesthetic of this story. And then you have Gideon and Harrowhark who show up and they literally every morning, this is also funny. Every morning they paint their faces to look like a skull with big black eye sockets and dress all in black. So, I mean, you can imagine that even though we see the story from their point of view, you can imagine most people who see them are like, what the hell is wrong with those two? <laughs> yeah. I mean, talk about goth uh, self-expression. But anyway, I found the world very charming. I'm not sure that it makes a ton of sense. I hope that in the sequel, I get explanation about the the backstory and the history here, which as Pete so astutely pointed out is deeply underexplained. I will also say that there is one key... Thing that happens in this book that is very similar to my novel that pissed me off actually because I I it, it it I was like man they're stepping on my idea here but you know hey, Tamsin Newer got there first she published first so um <laughs> anyway yeah well, uh, I, yep I mean unless unless unless
1: it's a it's it's quote for quote I I I think uh, different authors are allowed to have similar ideas so I, I, I can, let's give you a pass.
0: Oh, I agree. I got mad initially, and then I got over it, and and I did think it was cool how she used the thing that I'm thinking of as well. To be clear, um, I think you've already answered one of my questions, which is I think it's obvious to me uh, if I were to ask you, are you on Team Gideon or Team Harrowhark?
1: Oh, definitely Gideon, absolutely. Uh, I I mean, I'm I'm always
0: on the side of the Farden church. <laughs> That's another great Peteism. I love that. Um, <laughs> I, it's, I'm glad that you said that because it gives us a chance to disagree because I'm Team Harrowhark and that might just indicate that when I said you're Gideon and I'm Harrowhark, we were actually pretty accurate. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, you because know, Harrowhark, now Gideon has a big streak of this too, to be clear, because Gideon has trained her whole life to be, she wanted to be an Imperial soldier, what they call a cohort. Um, so she's a very willful person as well, but like Harrowhark's whole life is about like, you know, just being self-determined and willful in a way that just surpasses everyone else in this narrative universe thus far that we've encountered. And is really like just adamantine. And I'm not saying that I am that, that sort of like untouchable in what I do, but just the, the sheer, the sheer willfulness and the way that other things are organized around that willfulness um, is, and the kind of loneliness that that brings. Harehawk's a very lonely person. And of course, you know, Gideon. That's one reason that it's, that Gideon can can get close to her over time is that Herr Hark's never been really close to anybody. Um, so anyway, I can just, just like
1: Gideon, actually,
0: Gideon hasn't either. Exactly. Um, so I, I yeah, I, I think those are both really interesting uh, takes on that kind of thing.
1: Um, so uh, you were actually going to ask me this, but I'm going to ask you because I'm interested. In your answer. <laughs> Name a character you like that isn't Gideon or
0: Harrowhawk. That's an interesting one. I thought about that a little bit. I do like Agla- Iglamina. I- I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Who's like the? Uh, she trains Gideon in swordplay on their home planet. And she's kind of like, you know, a late middle-aged woman, aging, uh, too old to be the cavalier herself, um, sort of the, the disapproving, nagging uh authority figure for Gideon. the only, the only authority figure that Gideon has really ever acknowledged. Um, I liked her. She disappears fairly early in the book when we get to the next planet where we meet teacher who is the head priest of this strange, you know, abandoned palace in the middle of the ocean. Um, I liked him a lot. I thought his sort of like, uh, there are some interesting twists that happen with him that I won't spoil, but I liked how he was trying to keep all of these dumb kids, dumb, you know, brilliant, gifted, arrogant kids who are representing all of his houses. He's trying to keep them safe. Um, and the results are quite mixed.
1: <laughs> I liked him too. I mean, he, he was definitely my choice, is, is uh, uh, the teacher. He's, he, uh, um, I don't know, it, it, he just sort of seems half removed from the world. Like on the one hand, he's like being diplomatic and trying to keep everyone together. And on the other hand, he just sort of feels... Uh, naive, like like he spent his life in the court of Versailles, and then these people show up from the hinterlands, and he's trying to hold it together. And I, I found that I found that a charming part of this.
0: Yeah, totally. And I should also give a, a shout out to characters that you're supposed to like, which are the sixth house, uh, Camilla Hecht, being their very chaotic, um, very brave cavalier, and Palamedes Sextus being the sort of like. Very smart, very silver tongue. Because the sixth houses things that they're like, they're the wordsmiths. They're the writers of this world. Um Exis is a very good necromancer who kind of aligns with Gideon and Harrow Hark. And those were well rendered. I will say that one thing that I that bugged me about this book was I didn't feel like it was hammered home to me early on who these houses were. And I had to keep going back and checking and trying to sort them out because they're, you know there are there are quite a few characters floating around and i think this this book could have established who they were a little bit better early on so i wasn't confused all the time
1: yeah yeah well i mean and the problem is like there are everyone's either a knight or a necromancer and then it's like you need something to hang your hat on it's like i sort of figured out who the eighth house were because i was like oh those are the dicks and so i was able to keep that separate in my head for a while until i got more information but for a big part of the book, like, they're all just a bunch of necromancer uh, Hogwarts kids.
0: Yeah, there's a very long stretch in this book that I'd i have to go back and mark how many pages it runs from. But between right around the time getting a hair heart, get to the planet, um, which is, you know, it takes about 80 pages to get there. So there's a lot before that. Um, between that time... And when stuff really starts to kick off is quite a lot of the story, maybe almost 100 pages, if not more. And I can't remember almost anything that happened in there. (laughs) And, like, that – if this book has a flaw, it kind of comes down to that where it's like you have this long span that could have been used to help establish who these characters were, why I would care, to have Gideon do some mischief. Um, And it just kind of happens, and I, I totally am blanking on what happened during it. Do you have the same feeling, Pete?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you, you could pick up what was going on without it. And so that made it less important because you're trying to track the plot and piece things together. Right. You
0: know. I just thought that, like, if I were to be super critical, that would be the thing that I would pick on. It's like that could more could have been made of that. But I mean, overall, um, I, I actually really, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I think that the the universe that she's playing with is really unique um it's a you know one of those fascinating blends of fantasy and sci-fi because you have the magic system in the space empire and the necromancy stuff is really interesting um i do think the characters popped even like they didn't have to be as quippy as they were but like insofar as there's whedonism happening here um it's not like you know it, it's not in a way that derails anything um it can be a little bit jarring mostly in a funny way uh and i do think that muir is quite funny and witty and that's one of her great gifts as a writer um I really enjoy it. I liked the way that it ended. I don't want to spoil it for you. I don't I don't think that Pete liked the way that it ended. Am I right, Pete? Yeah, I mean it, i I wasn't angry, but I, I, I wasn't clapping either. Yes. And and like, you know, it does kick a lot over to a, a sequel that is coming very soon and we might even read shortly after it comes out, we'll see what happens. Um You know, I think I think we're getting to a good spot to leave it. What do you think, Pete? Yeah, I, I think this is the place. Cool. Well, I want to say uh, a couple things. We're continuing to play with our logo, which we've changed. Um, If you check on Twitter or Patreon, that that will be different by the time you hear this. We're also changing our patron tiers so that there's more rewards um, depending on what tier that you're in. So those of you that aren't patrons that are listening to this, that's even more incentive to become a patron. Because especially if you are $10 or more, when you first sign up, Pete will send you an actual book in the mail if you want one, which is pretty cool. Um, and
1: you will get more stuff over time, let's be clear And there's
0: more to come over time, yeah So if you're not a patron yet, now is a good time to become one Also because we're going to have a guest uh, later this week to discuss this book further So we're not done with getting the Ninth yet There's more content to come um, And that's going to be fun And, you know, we like to have a good time around here in general I think I think we're having a good time What do you think, Pete?
1: I'm with you, yeah, things are going great All right Um... Uh, Uh, Yeah, I don't have anything else to add, man Uh, I hope everyone's doing well I'll talk to you soon
0: Yeah, talk to you later, guys Thanks, bye-bye